As we continue our series, Crosstalk, each week we will look at one of the seven sayings from the cross. And today, the saying that we're looking from at the cross is, it is finished. And the reason we're addressing this one in light of Good Friday coming up before Easter and our opportunity to remember it together as a church, hopefully you'll join us this Friday night. Jesus said these words, and they're important to us because as he articulated those words, he was an accomplishing a mission that he had. Jesus always finishes what he starts. But for us, we have a lot of unfinished things in our lives, from degrees to remodeling projects, promises, paintings that are left unfinished, puzzles. We have goals that we made promises that we'll do. We have projects for our wives and for our children. Yes, I'll do that. They remain unfinished. We have landscaping ventures that the weeds have grown inside of them. We have workouts that are unfinished that we said, we're going to do it this time. Yet, the only person to ever live is Jesus who died and never left behind any unfinished business. And because of that, we are beneficiaries of that. How many of you have ever been to Mount Rushmore in person? How many of you have been there? Hold your hands up. As a family, we visited there years ago. We made a trip across the top of the United States, and then we came down through California, and then on the way back, we went through the Grand Canyon, the Four Corners, and but we stopped at Rushmore, and most of you maybe know this, and maybe some aren't aware, but Mount Rushmore was declared completed in 1941. Gutzond Borglum began this arduous task with hundreds of other people who chipped away at the rock in this mountain. His son picked it up and continued the project after he had passed away, but if you look at Mount Rushmore, it's an unfinished rock sculpture. The intention was for it to include, like Washington, from the chest up on each of the presidents. And if you look closely, you can see there are some unfinished eyes on Roosevelt. The Lincoln doesn't have his chest completed, nor do... Uh, Jefferson, it's an unfinished product, but if you didn't know it, you would think that's a finished product. A lot of times we disguise our finished products and leave them unfinished. But Jesus, when he went to the cross and said these words, his words and his mission not only was finished, but we are benefiting from it today. Grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 19 and verse 30. And stand with me as we look at these words that were spoken by Jesus over 2,000 years ago. Would you stand as we look at the gospel of John? John chapter 19 and verse 30. And for those of you who are tuning in online, I ask you to stand too. And John chapter 19 and verse 30. Would you read these words that were penned through the Holy Spirit by John? Read it with me, John 19, 30, ready, read. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Read it one more time. When he said 
when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You may have a seat. Jesus is a finisher. I can't overemphasize that, and I'll try to continue to drive that home throughout this message. And it's important for us, when he yelled those words out, that he did finish what he started. The Greek word, if you were to read this in the Greek, it's only one word. It's not three words like we have in English. It is finish. It's the Greek word, tetelastai. The word itself means completed, done, declared, finish. We have a world of good starters. I spoke some about this on Friday night at our men's gathering. We have men who start well but don't finish well. We have women who start well but don't finish well. We have people all over the world that are great starters but not good finishers. The word tell, telestai, means, think about this again, done, it's over. A completed project. It's the word that someone would use when they hike a mountain peak and they get to the top after this arduous hike. It is finished. It's the word that I would often, and many of you have articulated, after you've done a research project, after hours of laboring over it, it is finished. It's the word that I yell when I cross the finish line at a marathon in Cleveland. It is finished. It's the word that Ann and I collectively together after graduation at Grace Seminary with our NDIV. It is finished. It was completed. Finished. However, in this case, the word tetelestai is a verb. And the writer John was careful as he wrote this to put it in the tense that reflected that not only is it finished, but it's in the perfect tense. And if you study grammar as I have, the perfect tense means it's something that was completed in the past, but the effects of it are still felt into the future. If it was past tense, it would say, it's done, it's over, I did it. But the truth is, when Jesus said this, he knew when he spoke it this way, that what when he said, it is finished, not only was it in that moment, but we would be the beneficiaries of it in 2021 at Grace Community Church. His effects will continue. Your children and their children and their children and their children, if the Lord tarries, will still get the events and the effects of it is finished because of what Jesus has done. Jesus didn't say, I am finished. That would imply he died defeated and exhausted. Rather, it is successfully, I've completed the work I came to do. One scholar, Truman Davis, said this about the crucifixion. He said it was designed to keep the victim alive in as much pain as possible for as long as possible without letting them slip into shock. So crucifixions done by the Roman soldiers wasn't supposed to be something that, that quickly the person died. They wanted them to suffer and suffer and suffer. And they even were so good at it, they knew exactly how to hang them on the cross. They knew exactly what to offer them to drink. They knew exactly when to break their legs or not break their legs. They, they didn't want them to slip into shock and not even feel the pain from it. It involves dizziness and cramps and thirst and sleeplessness, hunger, traumatic fever, humiliation. 
shame, piercing wounds, ripped tendons. One person described this in a scientific way in regards to what our Savior faced. He said the way a crucifixion victim was kept conscious was by putting him through cycles of pain. When one element of the torture would threaten to make a person pass out, crucifixion would make him switch to something else that would keep him conscious. This is how it worked, technically. This author wrote, You hung down, suspended by your arms. Your feet were nailed so that they couldn't support you. Held to the crossbeam by nails, your wrists, your shoulders, and your elbows would soon pop out of joint. And because of this hanging position, your lungs would become so compressed, as long as you let yourself simply hang, you couldn't breathe. You start to suffocate. So in order to breathe, you'd hoist yourself up by your arms, which pulled on the nails in your hands. From the hanging position, you could draw air into your lungs, but not exhale the air. So at the point where you felt like you couldn't hold your breath any longer, you pull yourself up again to take another breath, and down again you'd go. This author says for hours, or sometimes days, the victim would alternate between searing pain and the panic feeling of suffocation. And each time he pulled himself up or let himself slide down, his back would be further torn open by the splintered center beam of the cross. And eventually, the victim would either give up or lack the power to pull himself up and die by suffocation. That's what our Savior went through for us. Mark 15, verse 37 to 41 says this about the same account. I ask you to turn back to Mark chapter 15 and verse 37 to 41. Mark 15, verses 37 to 41. Mark would write this in regards to these words. He said in verse 37 of Mark 15, with a loud cry. And by the way, John is the only gospel writer that said it is finished. You won't find it in the other gospels. But it's assumed here in Mark chapter 15 in verse 37. Mark says, with a loud cry. And scholars believe the loud cry was, it is finished. Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. We know from history that it was a Friday afternoon that on Skull Hill, because of the shape of the rock, it was called that. It was a public place, and the Romans loved crucifying people there. To them, it was like, hey, what are you doing this Friday? Let's go this Friday, and let's watch another crucifixion. But this crucifixion would be like none that any Roman had ever participated in or any person had ever witnessed before. 
It began at 9 a.m. And for three hours, everything went as the Romans had planned. At 12 noon, Scripture says, the sky became so dark, and scholars say that as they go back and read from the historians of Josephus and, and Philo, that they find that it was so dark on that day that people that give eyewitness accounts said they couldn't even see their hand in front of their face. Something happened in the sky that was different than any other crucifixion that had ever taken place. The sky became so black that you couldn't even see other people. History tells us there were screams everywhere, moans and undeniable sounds from onlookers wondering what's happening around this place. Then just as quickly as this darkness came, it now appears light. And on the cross is our Savior. And in anguish words, he disclaims. One word in Greek. Tet tell last eye. It it is finished. Do you wonder what was finished? Why did he say it's finished? And what does that mean to you and me today? Like, why do we even say what what was finished? Was it just the death? It's over? No, the, so much took place in that one Greek word. In fact, it turned the world upside down forever. It is finished, meant the sufferings ordained by God, were finished. The Old Testament prophecies were now fulfilled that the prophets say, there will come a man, and he would be the Messiah, that all these Old Testament people, followers of God, were looking forward to. And there he was on the cross, and he would die for the sins of the world. The ceremonial law was abolished. Finally, they didn't have to live by the law any longer. The price of all humankind's sin was paid for. Jesus said, I paid the price in full. His physical sufferings were at the end. It is finished. Tet telestai. His life was now finished as a human. The work of redemption was now complete. The gospel is being fulfilled in front of these onlookers. His mission to take the sins of the world to the cross have been completed. Death no longer has its sting. When Jesus said, it is finished. If it weren't for Jesus' death, it would still have its sting upon us. You see, we don't have to put the finishing touches on triumph any longer. Jesus triumphed over death. He took the sting from death from us. And because of this, we share in the victory and we are more than conquerors because of it. Think about it this way if you can. Jesus took the sting of death into his hands so that in him we have nothing more to fear. Death, the mighty enemy, has been reduced to a temporary inconvenient nuisance because when we die, the sting has been gone. We live more than we've ever lived in the presence of our God. 
J.D. Greer had a Muslim ask him one time about the crucifixion. It perplexes Muslims. Why would someone suffer and take sins that they didn't do to the cross? J.D. said this. He had a Muslim friend ask him one time this question. Why would God need someone to die to forgive my sin? If you sin against me, the Muslim said, I wouldn't ask you to kill someone who meant something to you. Allah, this Muslim said, must be more merciful than the Christian God because he doesn't require that kind of sacrifice. Greer goes on to say, many of us find this argument compelling, but that only proves we have a superficial understanding of forgiveness. If you ever really had to forgive someone of true injustice, you remember last week, you know it deeply costly. Injustice creates a debt, and someone must pay for it. Either you repay in kind, meeting out justice to those who deserve it, or you choose, remember last week, to absorb the pain of the forgiveness. You carry the pain of saying, I'm sorry. Greer would say, in choosing to forgive, it feels like part of you is being killed. Jesus took the sting of death for us. Jesus gave his life so that we could keep running the race. You see, our sins, that's what Paul says, we fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We can't get to God. We could try to run to get to him, but at some point we're going to fall short because we can't get to him. We need a perfect sacrifice. So what happens? God sent Jesus to scoop us up and to take our sins to the cross so that we could finish the race that's marked out before us. The best way I can think about this picture is, think about when you go to Disney World with your children. You want them to take in all the sights and all the events. You buy them the, the Mickey Mouse ears and the t-shirts and the, and the galactic turkey lay wing. And you get on all the rides, and and near the end of the day, you're ready to keep and stay at it. But you look at that child, what if they're weary? But they don't want to quit, do they? You want to go now? And so as a parent, you see them longing to finish the day. And what do you do? You scoop down, you pick them up, you put them on your shoulders, and you finish the day with them. They can't get to the end, but they want to. And that's what God did for us. There is this race called the human race. And our hope is that one day we'll finish it with God. And the only way we can get to God and finish the race marked out before us is when God sends his son Jesus. He scoops this weary body up and he finishes it for us. That's what happened at the cross for us. One of my favorite parts, if there is such a thing, is this in regards to the cross. The enemy was dealt a deadly blow at the cross. The cross was more than Jesus' death. It was the death of the enemy's power. 
You see, Satan was in high spirits for three hours during this moment. He thought he had accomplished his mission of killing Jesus. He is a deceitful liar and he probably deceived himself to believe that somehow I've won. His mission was to be like God from the beginning. And he wants the world to follow him and not Jesus. We need to go back and take a picture of of Satan's mission so that when his schemes and his tactics come, you're fully aware of them. Turn to Isaiah chapter 14 and let's just take a peek at the mission and the schemes and the desires of the enemy. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. It's a passage that hopefully you have underlined in your Bible and you could literally put as a heading the I wills of Satan. Satan said, I will do this. I will accomplish this. I will, but he doesn't. And because of this, he falls. Look at Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. It says, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars. I will set enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. And those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 28. Another reference to Satan's mission. Watch what happens to him and his mission to usurp the power of God and to be like God. Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 13. Underline this. You should have this outline. This, is, this was Satan's mission state that was disrupted and destroyed at the cross. Look at verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Carnelian, chrysolite, and emerald, topaz, onyx, jasper, lapis, lazuli, turquoise, beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were appointed as the guardian cherub, so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless, Lucifer, in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence. And you what? What's your Bible say? Sin. So I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God. So I kicked you out of heaven. I threw you. Kicked you out of the Mount of God. I expelled you, guardian chair, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before 
kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuary. So I made a fire come out from you and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and you will be no more. Amen. This is why Genesis 3 is so important. Go back to Genesis 3 now. We must understand the fall of Satan and his strategies so that we understand when Jesus said it is finished, what that meant to him. In Genesis 3, up to verse 14, it's the fall of man. It's where Adam and Eve sin. Insert the serpent. And this is what Moses wrote in regards to Genesis 3. He wrote in verse 14, So the Lord God said to who? Who did he say it to? The serpent. Come on, follow along with me. Verse 14 of chapter 3. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity. Let me explain that word. It's not even a word that we use in our English language. Hardly ever. I don't use that word. In fact, it's even hard to pronounce. The word enmity means a blood fuel between two people. It means there is going to be a bloodbath that's going to take place. Either I'm going to win or you're going to win. And we're going to go down in the battle and blood will be shed between the two of us. He says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman... And between your offspring, demons, demonic forces, principalities, and hers. Reference to Jesus. He will crush your head, Jesus. And you, Satan, will what? His heel. Strike his heel or bruise his heel. Insert cross. At the cross, when Jesus says it is finished, something had to take place at this cross. This Satan's head needed to be crushed. Jesus on the cross, fulfilling scripture, had to have his heel bruised or struck down. Think with me for a second how this unfolds in this passage. Satan thought it was over for those hours, but the death on the cross was a temporary and Jesus' resurrection crushed death and kicked Satan to hell. Hear me out. Yes, he suffered. Yes, his heel was bruised and struck. He bruised Jesus, but Jesus stomped on his head and crushed him forever. The best way I can say that in my Maryland twang, the bruising was temporary because ain't no grave going to keep our Savior down. <laughs> Why? Because Scripture was fulfilled. You will crush his head. And when Jesus said, it is finished, insert sledgehammer. <clears throat> he was dealt a deadly blow at the cross. Not only that, what took place there was not only a death of power, but 
something that helps us out today. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. It's so important. I hope you have all these connected together and you are writing beside those passages. Go here, go here. Because when the enemy comes hunting after you, when he sends his fiery darts after you, just remind him of what has taken place. Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 13 through 15. In Colossians chapter 2 it says, When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. We saw that last week on the cross. Having what? What's the next word? Cancel the charge of our legal indebtedness. We had a debt because of our sin. And so judiciary-wise, here it is. Jesus canceled the debt that was hanging over our heads which stood against us and condemned us to hell. It says, Paul says, he has taken it away and he did what to it? Nailing it to the cross. And you know what he nailed? It is finished. Debt paid. But verse 15 often gets overlooked. 15 says, and having, what's the next word? Disarm the powers and authorities He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. All of our debt has been canceled by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And because of his payment for our sin, we have access to God through Jesus Christ. The best way I can describe is this. For sake of illustration, the enemy has been disarmed. Picture, if you can, you're traveling to a city, maybe for vacation or business trip, and you're sleepless. So you decide to take a walk at night down one of the alleys of this city. And as you're walking down this dark alley one night, unbeknownst to you, there is someone hiding behind the trash cans that wants to rob you and take your money, and your possessions. And as you walk by these trash cans, this person comes behind you, puts a hand behind your head, and puts a gun to your head and says, give me all your money. In that moment, who has control over you? The person with the gun. And so what would be the smart thing to do? Is to empty your pockets and say, take the cash, take the money. Because I don't want to die. Your weapon can kill me. You hand over your money and you scurry away. And he has robbed you of all that you have. For sake of illustration, suppose the next night you're restless again. And you decide to take a walk down the same alley. It's dumb, but you do it. And as you're walking down this same alley... You go by the place where you were robbed the night before and you're a little apprehensive and you keep walking. And further down the alley, this guy jumps out and he does the same thing. Puts a gun to your head and says, give me your money. But something different happens that night. From behind you comes this hand that takes the weapon of this perpetrator and disarms the perpetrator. And all he's left with 
is a finger and a thumb. Who has control of your life now? All he's left with is a finger and a thumb. He can't take anything from you. Why? Because the enemy has been disarmed. And when Jesus went to the cross, he took the weapon that the enemy had and says, you no longer have power and authority over my people. You are only left, hear me, with a finger and a thumb. Now pause for a second. Some of you are letting a disarmed enemy feed you lies, telling you he's powerful, you will fail, you're miserable, and he is bullying you around with a finger and a thumb. And know what we need to say? Hey, big boy, you've been disarmed at the cross. In Jesus' name, take a hike. That's why Isaiah would say this prophetically. No weapon formed against me will ever prosper because Jesus disarmed the enemy at the cross. Amen? Amen. See, the Christian walk often comes back to this. It's us talking scripture to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves. It's us walking in the power and authority of Jesus Christ and his power that was demonstrated on the cross. And the enemy, a defeated enemy, has no threat on our lives. Matthew chapter 27 Reminds us in verse 51 to 54 that this was no normal execution that Jesus was putting an end to. Because this execution and crucifixion, by giving his own life, was giving us an open door to salvation to his Father. I hope that you're just starting to begin to understand the gospel. We are saved because of what was done and not because of what we do. Hear me. It is finished. Jesus did the work. We benefit from his work. So much more took place by Jesus saying it is finished. Mark chapter 16, verse 38. It says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Can I just describe this veil or this curtain for you? Because it's so important. Because New Testament Jesus, followers of Christ today, we operate, for lack of better words, with a new paradigm. The new covenant. This curtain, during this time when Jesus was on the cross, it was four inches thick. And once a year, in fact, they tell us that it had 72, it was woven with 72 blue and red and purple cords. And it was sealed off for any human being other than the high priest. And just once a year, 
this high priest, you know what the high priest would do? He would make his way in behind the curtain and he would bring this blameless sacrifice. It was called the Day of Atonement. And this one day a year, this priest would come and this sacrifice, which symbolically, you heard me say last week, would be credit to our righteousness later, symbolically. He would give this sacrifice, and what happened, what it meant was this David, this sacrifice atoned for the sins that were committed during that time. In other words, when the blood was put over the, the door frames of the home, when death came knocking at the door because of sins with these Old Testament followers of God, the death angel passed over. Why? Because of the atonement of the sacrifice on the day of atonement. So this was an important day every year when that high priest came in and he would lay this sacrifice because all these followers of Yahweh would say, my sins have been passed over. But on this day, it says that the temple curtain, now they had never witnessed this. This was a first for them. An earthquake shook the ground. And the temple tore from the top to the bottom and it opened up the Holy of Holies. And what that meant was this. We now have access to God through the blood of Jesus on the cross. We don't have to have a high priest anymore that goes for us because Jesus is our high priest. Oh man, that is so good. That's some good preaching. I don't care what you say. All the restrictions of the law were abolished by Jesus' death on the cross. And when he said, it is finished. We have been upgraded because of Jesus' death. We should be an economy, but we're first class because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We now have free access to God through Jesus for salvation. Think about it this way. God's not trying to sell you salvation. He's not offering it to us at half price. He's not asking you to go Dutch treat on your salvation. Some of you are, let me do a little bit more, Jesus. Let me help out. Are you kidding me? His death is enough. He's not offering salvation on an installment plan. God is offering salvation free of charge because the price has been paid and the job is finished. That's what telestai means. Jesus paid in full so that we wouldn't have to pay anything. Paul would say this, and maybe this verse will come to light better for you today. This is how Paul, who was so intelligent, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, just listen how he describes it. He said, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean for you and me today? We can dip into the account of Jesus to pay our debt of sin. He resources our debt. I heard Tony Evans tell this story 
it's one of the best stories I've ever heard on this. He said he was doing, Tony's a, a preacher, and, and he's Tony Evans Sr., and his son is Tony Evans Jr. And Tony Evans Sr. was doing a wedding that his son was flying to from another state. So Tony Evans Sr. decided that he would go to the airport to pick up Tony Evans Jr., So he's at the airport, it was a small airport, and he could see the plane arriving. And then he noticed that Tony Evans Jr., his son, was the third person off the plane. Now, if you've ever flown, if you're getting off third, that means you're in what? First class. (laughs) Tony knew what his son was making. (laughs) And he knew that he didn't have the resources to fly first class. So when his son finally made it through the turnstile and came and met him, he says, hey, I noticed that You flew first class. What up with that? He said, well, Dad, when I was at the airport, I went up to the desk and I asked him, are there any seats left in first class? And they said, yes, there are. And so they showed me the seat and then they asked me what I said. I would like to ride first class. Well, do you have the resources? He said, what's your name? My name's Tony Evans. So they pulled up Tony Evans Sr.'s name, who had platinum flying miles. And he said, yeah, that's me. He cashed in on his father's account to fly first class. (laughs) He dipped in to what his father had done for him so that he could go from economy to first class. You see where I'm going? We dip in to the righteousness of our father because of the work he did through his son that we move from here to first class and eternal life in Jesus. You cannot place living faith in a dead savior. You've heard me say this, but it's so worth repeating. We have a lot of founding religious men who found religions. And most of them are really weird. And they've been buried in a tomb somewhere. And the truth is this. People follow them. They give to them. And you go to Muhammad's tomb. And they make these trinkets and shrine houses for them. But hear me out. If you go to their gravesite and their tomb, the bones are still there. And by the way, the last time I checked, dead people can't do anything for you. But our God on Easter Sunday was resurrected. And you go to his tomb, it's empty. (laughs) I love what Luke says in regards to salvation. Luke, who's a doctor and physician, who was always good with his words, and so he saw things from a a forensic side. He said this in Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Only through Jesus Christ. Evidence demands a verdict. (laughs) And Dr. Luke had evidence, and the verdict is, it is finished, and we now have access to the Holy of Holies because Jesus said it is finished on the cross. All of our sins have been stamped, paid in full by God with one word, 
tetelestai. English, paid in full. Gluttony for you and me, paid in full. Drunkenness, paid in full. Anger, paid in full. Lust, paid in full. Adultery, paid in full. Gossip, paid in full. Pride, paid in full. Murder, paid in full. Sins of our childhood, paid in full. Sins of our adulthood, paid in full. Tet, tell, last eye, it is finished. We can finish the race set out before us because Jesus finished his. They say, unless you're a trained lifeguard, and if you witness someone in distress in a swimming pool or lake, you're better off not trying to save this person while he or she is thrashing in the water. They say you should wait until the swimmer has settled down or grown weaker. They say you should then swim up and begin to haul the person to safety. They say as long as a person is trying to save himself or herself, you'll only endanger yourself attempting to help that person. Psalm, the author would say, cease striving and know that I am God. And Psalm, the authors say, the salvation of God begins when our human striving ends and we let ourselves grow calm and embrace the full acceptance of Jesus Christ, knowing that salvation has already been secured at the cross because Jesus said, it is finished. Oh God, I pray that we would grasp the marvelous truth of this statement. I pray we would quit striving and ceasing to earn our salvation when we know what has been done is good. And Jesus paid it all for us. Lord, we are way more powerful than we recognize at times. We serve a God who is triumphant. A God who rules sovereignly. A God who took the sins of the world through his son Jesus and died on the cross and was resurrected. Who took the sting out of death for us. And who has dealt the enemy a deadly blow. We have a disarmed enemy who tries to bully us around with a finger and a thumb. I ask, God, that we would walk in the power of the risen Savior. And we would know that by his stripes we are healed and our sin and the debt of our sin has been paid in full because Jesus paid it all. In Jesus' name.